Welcome, everyone, to another exciting, thrilling episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm your host today, Will Button. Joining me in the studio, my co-host, Jonathan Hall. Hello, everyone. And our special guest this week, Vince Reed. Welcome, Vince. Thank you. Greetings, folks. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, That's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So Vince, you want to give us a little bit about your background? Sure. I am the director of DevOps at uh, Polygon Technologies, a blockchain company that has uh, grown explosively over the last few years. Two and a half years ago, we were 40 people. Now we are about 600 people in officially 36 countries with a blockchain that it uh, has a token that is in the top 15 tokens worldwide and uh, has a valuation of, depending on the day and market conditions, somewhere between 5 and $20 billion. And we are busy growing and scaling and finding opportunities to allow people to use our blockchain to provide various tools and services. And before being the director of DevOps at Polygon, I worked for an AI for radiology startup, which was considered one of the top 50 smartest companies by by MIT's technology review. And the the goal there was to eliminate 90% of the data screened by radiologists because it mostly is um, normal, what they technically deem unremarkable and (laughs) just gets in the way of them screening the things that actually matter that can save people's lives. And the big challenge there was just the sheer volume of image data that needed to be processed and managed. It's funny because I worked in the, the same field as well, and it's amazing like how much time and effort and work is put into just boilerplate language about reading a radiology image just to keep them like legally out of trouble. (laughs) Yes, that and the fact that every specific medical entity involved has their own lexicon for describing all the, the terminology and for describing the process used for evaluating 
those images. So there's there's actually business out there whose job is just to map terms from one provider to the next so that they can actually have a conversation about the actual content of the data. Yeah, good times. So I wanted to ask, when you started with Polygon, like there's two huge things that stand out to me. Number one, just the sheer growth in terms of number of people has got to be tough to take on. But then blockchain itself is a new technology that doesn't really have defined standards and like known answers to the questions of how do we scale this? How do we secure this? So what was your, your thought process and approach whenever you started this? And how do you, how do you break that down and, and prioritize? Like, where do you start? Sure. So having been around the technology block a few times, the first thing I noticed when going in the door is that there wasn't very much in the way of process or documentation or procedure across the organization for, for any any particular task, role, or purpose. I was aghast to find that a development team member could say, hey, this is done, let's ship it. And then the minute they type that in a Slack channel, members of the DevOps team would start deploying. It's like, wait, uh what version number is that? What's the release plan? What's the rollout plan? What's the recovery plan? Who, who are the stakeholders? Have they been notified? Uh, <laughs> where are we watching for outages? And 20 other questions. And they're like, oh, we should be doing that? <laughs> I believe that's called and, YOLO ops. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so job number one was to sort of define all the processes and procedures that should be in place. Start creating documentation for those. And then walking the team through training and scenarios to some, in some cases, gradually for specific details, but overall to rapidly start implementing those controls. So we had cleaner release processes and cleaner troubleshooting efforts as a result. That was number one. But then on the organizational side, there were similar questions and concerns. And when a company grows in, in hyper growth mode, it's hard to keep up with the current state anyway. But when the basic state is that very little is documented and things grow that quickly, you end up with a game of telephone just to try to get anything done. Hey, who does what? You ask person one who says talk to person two, who says talk to person three, and on and on until you get a name. And that name may be the actual implementer of said tool process or service or they may be the owner of the team who does it, or or some other such answer. And I found that we were spending a large amount of time just talking about work rather than actually working because of all that missing documentation, organization, and structure. So then I set out to start addressing some of those types of structural issues. And so the basic answer is frameworks, 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 frameworks for following processes, frameworks for documenting what uh, is to happen and how it's to happen, and frameworks for how the team members communicate with each other and communicate status so that everyone could agree on where the conversations would happen which helped way more than you would expect or believe. And that that was the, the most important set of things to work on first. It's just 
agreeing how to talk, where to talk, and, and when to talk. Yeah, because a lot of those people were, you know, in 36 countries. So there's some time zone issues to deal with there, which means a question could go a full day before you get mm -hmm. an answer. And then the answer might be, oh, yeah, that's not me. Sorry. Yep. And so now you're back to another day <laughs> trying to get another answer. Right? Time zone issues, definitely. But then also issues with the fact that it's Web3. So working locations matter. And people have various levels of experience ranging from this is the first time I ever had a real job before to actually this isn't even my real job yet. I'm just an intern to, hey, I've been doing this for a couple of decades and, and I know some stuff and everywhere in between and trying to get them all on the same page and following the same plan and methods to get things done is, is kind of a big deal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so it was a lot of work about how to work and how to communicate about working in order to free up the bandwidth to actually do the work and track how the work is being done. And then with all of those things done, then we could actually get to hey, here are some operational best practices and procedures we should be following. And hey, I've noticed you, you do this thing that's, that's a small thing, but you do it every day. And cumulatively, you're spending a couple of days a month doing this. You ever thought about automating it? <laughs> <laughs> Which is the DevOps, right? And sometimes the answer is that it isn't automated because there's not the bandwidth to do it. Sometimes it's because there's some logic involved that hasn't been able to be captured. And, and sometimes it's not automated just because it never occurred to them how much time is actually being spent on. And so then the next order of business is basically identifying what things to automate and in what order for the, the biggest payoff. And that's kind of what we're working through today even as we still scale up and support more platforms and tools and services and, and team members using those and products being delivered using them that need to be exposed to the public. There you go. Piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> Fun times, for sure. And then uh, there's the, the whole bit with incident response. When you're playing telephone and you don't have good communications, it's kind of hard to communicate well when doing issue management and you know, crisis management. So then, then it was about defining tools and processes for how do we deal with things that are not behaving as expected, both in terms of how we follow a process to diagnose and remediate the problem and how we communicate about that process, and discovering the problem, discovering the root cause of the problem, discovering the resolution for the root cause of the problem and discovering the ETA to finally resolving the problem by applying whatever the resolution is to that, that root cause and standardizing the communication about all of that so that um, we don't have to communicate in 12 different channels where in some channels um, <clears throat> executive leadership is communicating with high value partners and in other channels some partners aren't directly pinging engineers saying, hey, what about this? What about this? What about this? <laughs> <laughs> While they're actively trying to solve the problem. So lots of things that needed to be standardized and codified so that they could be followed and smooth, smooth out those processes. But uh, 
we're getting a lot done. So uh, basically, it's a lot of meta work <laughs> in order to actually get to the actual work. Yeah, and it sounds like there's a lot of, I think this might surprise some people, you know, given that it's blockchain and Web3, there's still a lot of skills and tools and processes that we've refined over the last few decades that just translate directly over to that and and still apply. Oh, absolutely. People look at blockchain as this new mystical, magical technology. But if you boil it down to its barest essence, it's a collection of globally distributed nodes of distributed databases that are collaboratively run and interact instead of being owned by a single enterprise. Basically, you have an entire community that's running a shared distributed database if we boil it down to its its basic technologies. And uh, we all, there's precedent and documentation and process for managing distributed systems and all of it applies. Right on. Yeah, what's what, what's different is, hey, we're doing it in Go, we're doing it in Rust, we're doing it with new APIs and applications and tool sets on top of that distributed database. It's lots of fun, for sure. Jonathan, what do you think? I'm not really sure where to start. You, you know that I'm kind of a, a novice with the, the blockchain mm-hmm. world. <laughs> the universe is kind of kind of nebulous to me, so I don't really have a, a lot of hooks to hang questions on. Okay, well, uh, yeah. so, well, to that I respond. Well, back in October, so was I. <laughs> 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 I, you know, my background is pretty long, as as is the case for many of us, and um, my first exposure to crypto in general was because of the information security and data privacy aspects. And, you know, I'm one of those people who probably has some substantial amount of Bitcoin in a closet somewhere that I've forgotten about because (laughs) I was involved early when it wasn't worth anything. And, you know, and it was easy and said, ah, this isn't going anywhere. I'm going to go do some other stuff. And then when it started to get really interesting and be widespread and usable, was actively paying attention. And then in the 2015 to 2017 timeframe, all the well-known big name exchanges and several who no longer exist were coming online. And the surest way to divest yourself of your crypto assets was to give them to an exchange because you're through an incompetence or just bad luck or actual malice, they were going to lose your assets. Some of them, the founder said, hey, 700 million in assets in the bank. I think those belong to me now, and I'm going to move to a non-extradition country, and ah, too bad for you guys. Uh, That happened. Some exchanges just had operational issues that led to data loss, which led to asset loss. And then some exchanges were badly run and had security breaches and people ran off with assets. And then, of course, there's all the phishing. So the easiest way to lose your crypto was to host it in an exchange. So in 2017, I actually walked away from crypto completely, even though I was actually at the time working for a Forex startup that uh, did currency trading and was adding crypto to their platform. I kind of stayed down the hall from that team. And every time they would make decisions about implementation practices and policies, and I thought they were going to do something that didn't make sense or was inappropriately scaled, I'd point that out, but declined to join those teams. And then 
later left for the AI for radiology startup and wasn't really paying attention to crypto at all when Polygon reached out to me and said, hey, you want to come do this stuff? And my first thought was, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, after taking a closer look at the tools, the technologies, and the team, I got really excited. And uh, back in October, I had never been to a crypto conference before. And sure, I could name tokens and I could explain what a consensus mechanism is. And I could tell you about some of the major tokens and their networks. But other than that, I really wasn't actually paying attention to crypto at all. And I joined Polygon October 18th last year. And by November 1st, I was at my first crypto conference in New York City. And now, uh, not quite a year later, I've been to over half a dozen around the world and could have gone to more. But hey, I do actually have a team to run and real work to do. And um, attending the conferences was good both to help me get my head in the space and understand the players and tools and technologies and to find out what the community needs from Polygon in order to help drive adoption and to foster successful use of the blockchain. So I didn't I didn't have any background in any of this stuff really either before last October and just rely on the fact that, you know, everything old is new again and that you can always take any technology and break it down to its basic elements and understand it in order to be able to ride herd over this <laughs> rapidly evolving set of tools, technologies and services. What are the what are the main differences that that you see now, now that you've been doing this for a year? How would you describe working in blockchain as different than working in any other technical field? Ah, uh, so with regard to DevOps, of course. I mean, not 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 in the you know, not, not in the wildest uh, interpretation. So first thing is it's distributed, it's public, it's global. So your products always have an audience that you're not entirely aware of all of its members for one, and for two. In some businesses early on, you make the decision cloud or no cloud, or you start in one and eventually migrate towards the other. But by the nature of what we're doing, since it's public and global, it kind of presupposes cloud in the first place. And all the operation models are basically factoring cloud cost into deployment. So if you're building a blockchain, if you're running a blockchain, it presupposes cloud whether that's something like AWS or GCP or Azure, or it is some private cloud with you know public endpoints is a separate question, but it's, it's definitely a cloud-first environment, and that's not always the case, even though many people associate, associate DevOps with cloud exclusively, um, that's not always the case, but it's definitely so here. That's, that's the first thing. And then the next thing is that it's very much open source, So we're building products and services and technologies, but those are based on core tools, technologies, and services that are public and open source. So in some cases, we fork them completely and go on our own divergent path. But in other cases, it means we're coupled, in some cases, very tightly, in other cases, loosely, with uh, work produced by open public foundations that we then build on to create the things we create. And that is interesting because of uh, dependencies and visibility and 
external collaboration needed in order for that to work well. You know, if there is an underlying technology that's in, you know, 60% of the things you deliver and it has issues, it's probably a good idea to have some regular and open communication with the foundation that manages the building of that. And hey, maybe you even actually have conversations within GitHub about the content of the repos and the timing and pacing of releases and things like that. And then another uh, more technical aspect is blockchains by definition have uh, a history that goes from inception of those networks, as they call them, to the current transactions happening right now. And there are nodes on the network that have every transaction that's ever existed. They tend to call those archive nodes. And in the case of ours, the size of an archive node today is 20 terabytes. So there are some data challenges associated with uh, those having good performance, keeping those up to date, and doing um, remediation work on them or spinning up new instances of those nodes and having them get current with the transactions that are happening now and absorbing all of what has happened before. So that, that's a pretty interesting set of challenges to work on. You know, how do you take backups and make snapshots available of the whole history in a public way for people to consume to spin up nodes that need that much data? And how much does it cost to run a node that needs that much data? And so on and so on. So there are definitely things that are very interesting about blockchain, both in terms of the working model and in terms of the actual features and requirements of the, the different nodes being operated. Yeah, I think from a DevOps perspective, one of the interesting things to consider there is given that the blockchain nodes can be run by anyone, anywhere, at any time. Like in my experience with DevOps, we've always built and deployed the infrastructure for our company. But with blockchain, that infrastructure can actually be anyone from other enterprise organizations to some guy living in his mom's basement. Absolutely. <laughs> it's completely true. We actually have two sets of deployment instructions as a result. Well, really, it's eight because for each release, they actually get released four different ways. There's the source for those who want to compile and configure on their own. There are binaries that are just uh, packaged in the tarball that you can pick up and deploy and wrap your own configs around. There's actual distribution packages for various flavors of Linux. And then there's Docker images. And there are both small and large ecosystem participants that use all of the above. And so we have documentation on our public website that explains how to use some or multiple of those delivery methods to deploy nodes. And then we also have conversations with partners and collaborators about deployment issues they run into trying to deploy at one scale or the other using one of those four deployment methods. And yeah, that, that's definitely an interesting case. As we tune for scale and automatability and um, auditability, we're producing one set of instructions and tools and workflows purely for internal use and then yet another set for, for use externally. 
And we have to keep both up to date and in sync with the uh, supporting documentation. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much of a challenge that we're facing the question internally of whether we actually put documentation team members within the DevOps group or if we get dedicated uh, technical writers assigned to us by the the writing teams within the company. And that's a question we're actively uh, working towards an answer for right now because there's so much DevOps work to do within the company that at one point it was suggested that every team acquire their own DevOps people and we were able to explain why that's a bad idea and ar- argue that we should own all the DevOps people within the DevOps team and maybe in some cases loan some out to teams to have a more tightly loose uh, partnership where as they march through their various development stages towards production, they have DevOps people along the way to provide uh, design expertise, to provide operational practice and procedure expertise, and to do that as things progress so that uh, DevOps is not a checkbox and at the end of their development process, they don't hand over something that they've designed in vacuum and expect us to support and deploy it when maybe we don't even use the technologies they've selected. And in arguing that the DevOps team owns all the DevOps members and that teams don't select their own DevOps people and embed them, uh, we basically made the argument that we should not get our own technical writers within the DevOps team because we'd be doing the same thing that we're teaching the other teams is a bad idea for them to do so. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there's definitely a need for dedicated writing resources because there's so much to do and so much unique automation and, and process being developed. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. What are you, what, can you talk a little bit about what your DevOps team and DevOps people do specifically? Because, you know, I mean, we joke about it all the time on the show that DevOps is such a vague term that nobody knows what it means. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, that the idea of a DevOps team is widely considered an anti-pattern. So what, what mm-hmm. do you, what does yours actually mean? What does that, what does it do? Okay. So actually I discussed this with uh, one of my most senior teammates who also happens to be a member of this podcast. <laughs> and, Wait, uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> And is a highly respected and very valued recent member of the team. That's that's Will here. Uh, thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Excited to be here. And th- this podcast is one one of many reasons we chose to add him to the team because he has a great voice and is good for explaining complex technologies and processes. You hear that, Will? I hired to- you for your voice. <laughs> so I always said I have the face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> and because um, he's good at explaining things, technical things to less technical folks. So what do we do? We have five categories. And category one is incident response. There are things we've built and made available to the public and anything that's available can have issues and those issues need resolution. Incidents response covers that. But given the number of things we have deployed, the scale at which they're deployed and the reach and the fact that incidents come in three flavors, vendor problems, environment problems, and code problems, we are making changes to our processes and to our observability tooling so that when alerts arrive about service issues, that we can clearly tell which category they fall into. And if it's a vendor problem, well, we get on the phone with the vendor and we just communicate about it and hope that the resolution is quick. And if it's if it's a previously unknown issue, then we add design patterns for working around it to future deployment plans. But if it is an environment issue, that's the purview of the DevOps team. That's things like uh, we need more disk space or we need f- new firewall rules or those types of issues. We need more network bandwidth. But if it's a code problem, like uh, the reason we need more disk space is because a node client got a bad opcode and started writing 100 times more log data than it normally does, well, that's an application problem and it belongs to the team. So part of incident response is building observability tooling that can differenti- differentiate those problem classes and route accordingly. So that's category one. Category two is service request, which is we, we now have a ticketing system, which we didn't have before. And the ticketing system is great because it is a means for all the teams to communicate their requests and for those requests to be populated with the appropriate level of technical detail to be actionable and then for ETA to be communicated uh, without a bunch of talking about working rather than actually working. So it reduces chatter and allows more time for teams to request work and more time for us to actually get the work done. And more importantly, it also is a means for me to justify how many people are on the team because I can point to the ticket queue and say, look, every week we run through this many tickets. And even though we ran through that many tickets, there's still this many tickets pending. We need more team members. So category two is service requests. And those are making technical decisions about deployments to come, about uh, operating technologies to be used in deployments. It's about building automations for future deployments and setting up CI/CD processes so that when teams make new releases, those things can be automatically deployed after some appropriate checks and verifications are done. It's all about taking the things we build and making them available outside and facilitating that availability. So those are service requests. That's category two. Category, and there's a three, four, and five. Basically, there is design work for advancing the state of our environments, tooling, and processes. That's all internally driven. Uh, sometimes it comes from watching what happens with the service request or incident response. Sometimes it's just there are new best practices. Sometimes tools evolve. But category three, it's evolving the state of the art in our environment. And then category four is loaning team members to 
the various teams producing things that are going to get exposed outside and letting them work in a tight loop to produce new documentation to have the DevOps team members become subject matter experts in new tools and technologies to, to help that team. And then category five is security. There's so much stuff to secure, both in terms of operational practices and policies and in terms of configuring all the tools and environments we use that it now needs its own category. And uh, so those are all the things that DevOps means for us in our environment. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the cool things that, because I've only been with Polygon for just over a month now, but one of the coolest things... I've taken away in that month is how we've approached security. And I hadn't seen this model before. So I think it's worth pointing out and, and getting your feedback on it. But we have a dedicated security team who obviously has a lot on their plate. But one of the unique things about it is they only have read-only access to everything. So they can scan and monitor and audit everything but they don't have any permissions to take action on that. So if they identify something, their only response is to log a ticket and then the appropriate team acknowledges and works through and resolves that issue. And then when they close the ticket, the security team can perform their checks again and decide if they they feel the issue is resolved or not. So I thought that was super cool and a, a really unique approach that I hadn't seen before. What was the thought process behind setting it up that way? So we we set it up that way for two reasons. Reason number one is teams have scale. All the teams have scalability issues and separating identifying issues and reporting them from actually implementing them makes having variable availability of auditing resources and varying availability of resolution resources more manageable, but even more importantly than those things, what it does is separate identifying problems and correcting them. And it means that the teams that actually use the systems and understand the systems and do all the works on the systems are educated about security practices and policies by being guided through directives about correcting exposed issues. And and that's the best part. We end up with, through our ticketing system and through other documents that are produced, a body of documentation about how to secure the environment, what has been secured, and what remains to be secured. And if the security team just went off on their own and discovered and resolved things, they'd be in black bots, and the organization would not grow any security expertise amongst the team members. And in addition to all of the directives and guidance they provide about securing our tools and endpoints and the code bases we work with, they're also educating the team members about being savvy against social engineering attacks. So there's anti-phishing training, there's anti-spoofing training, and we're also putting the tools and technologies in place to monitor our brand assets and uh, all of our communications to help secure the work we do and by proxy then secure the assets that people are, are managing using our technologies. And yeah, so if we didn't separate security the team 
from security to process, as, as we've talked about separately, then the visibility into the security processes and policies being implemented and growing the, the security knowledge will not happen, but it's a direct result of separating things the way we have. And that also means that the DevOps team members get to be security people, <laughs> but don't have to own all of security because in an org this size, it, it definitely needs its own team. There's way too much to do. So which of these five categories is so unimportant you're willing to put Will on? on? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's definitely not incident response. Incident response <laughs> incident response is just one of those in the moment, follow the process, document what's happening and get it done kinds of things. And it's over and done. I'm sure you can make incremental improvements to how that happens. But once you've got a good framework for communicating about how incidents are uncovered, diagnosed, and then resolved, there isn't a whole lot to do there. Whereas all those other categories, there is much, much, much to improve. And so we, we very much need them in all of those categories. And um, actually the way we, we most use him is as a best practices technical reference. So they take a look at my work and say, see, this is what you don't do. <laughs> but there's a joke on there. There's a joke there somewhere. Like some people, like you, there's all the conversations about what's your purpose in life. And there's a joke. I can't, mm-hmm. I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like sometimes your purpose may, in life may just be to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes your story is not the story. You're the footnote in the story. <laughs> right. or, or the object lesson. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious what you think the, you know, we talked a little bit about how blockchain is in its early stages and there's still lots of room to grow. What, what does the future of blockchain and DevOps look like in the, the years to come, do you think? Well, people talk about how amazing blockchain is and how performant some of the tools and technologies are. But Visa processes 28,000 transactions per second worldwide. (laughs) Blockchains are still in the single digit integer transactions per second as far as functional usable transactions. Although at the database layer, we're, we're talking hundreds or thousands of transactions per second, but there's a difference between database transactions for the sake of blockchain consistency and data distribution versus storing the transactions that are the actual token movements and balance changes and those sorts of things. So technology wise, I think there's an evolution that needs to happen to reduce the disparity there so that the performance can increase. And then once that happens, it'll be much easier for blockchains to take over some of the functionality that's traditionally associated with other systems like banking systems for credit cards and other store value systems or doing things like uh, medical records management, for example, that to pick, to pick a problem that everybody hates dealing with. You know, if you grow up in one specific medical system, at, at least here in the U.S., maybe it's so other places as well, 
but they kind of own your data, even though it's data about you and really is your data. And then when you move to a different system, uh, you want to take that history with you, but there's a lot of process and procedure required to do that. And it doesn't scale and it's non-standard, but, uh, if your medical records were stored immutably in a blockchain, getting access to them would be pretty simple and pretty easy. And you could standardize the formatting. And it doesn't matter who your healthcare professional is or where they are, whether they're within the U.S. or somewhere else in the world. The data is there. It's distributed. It's available. And it's public in the sense that the, the raw record information is there. But if it's encrypted... It, it still would be safe. There's lots that can be done, but the technologies have to improve. And then where does DevOps fit into all of that? It has to be scaled. It has to be tuned. It has to be configured for reliability and disaster recovery and all of those things associated with any sort of production enterprises of any system. And today, blockchains do that just by virtue of the fact that they have lots of nodes and if any particular node goes down, another node has the full copy of the data. So there it is. But even with that being the case, there are still issues with usability, with performance, with a latency. And DevOps teams can help with all of those once some of the more basic usability and design issues are addressed. And uh, not for nothing, maybe DevOps is the place where some of those things get worked out too. In our case, we know that some of our underlying technologies use um, public standard database technologies that work well for some use cases and not so well for others. And it's an exercise to find better tools that data, database tools that are more suited to purpose and, and graph them into some tool sets. And that that's a process that DevOps can help with as well. So there's there's lots for DevOps to do, just as there's lots to do to improve the technologies to make them more globally useful. Do you see any opportunity for blockchain to merge with some of the other big buzzwords around serverless, for example? Or or does is blockchain inherently require servers? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yes, there is opportunity for some of those things, and it depends on scale. So as I was saying, there are, as a full network, yes, you, you need some servers because of the scale, because the amount of data managed, but there are design considerations that could be made to change that. That data would still have to live somewhere and that somewhere would be a server. So in one sense, you can't really get away from servers, but then in other cases, some of the transactions and processing that needs to happen are small and light, so they definitely could be serverless. And there are tools and technologies in use today that do deploy some of those types of use, use cases and operate in, in those ways. So yes, definitely possible with the right selection of scenarios. Cool. It's funny because after the last few weeks, you know, in the previous three or four episodes, we've had Matt and Connor and Taylor, all who are leading WebAssembly on the server initiatives. And after chatting with each one of those and then my work at Polygon, I just keep thinking, man, it's only a matter of time before we run blockchain nodes as WebAssembly. <laughs> and I know you, in Kubernetes in the browser, right? With Kubernetes in the browser, absolutely. 
<laughs> wow. <laughs> Those are going to be some expensive laptops. <laughs> uh, the M3 will be out soon. It'll be fine. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm holding Apple stock. We're good for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. That'll do it. Another interesting thing about blockchains is that since it uh, all runs on Linux, is um, any processor flavor is fine. And we find that in many cases, running things on ARM is a much better value proposition. So when we release the release artifacts I was talking about earlier, there are x86 versions, of course, but there are also ARM versions and they actually get used. So unlike the world writ large where ARM is still kind of a, an exception or used in very narrow and specific use cases, blockchain uses whatever CPU you want to throw at it, which is an, an interesting operational wrinkle and it's definitely more exciting for the DevOps team. We get to use Graviton. In some cases, when talking about acceleration, we're considering talking about deploying things on GPUs and so on and so on. So that's another interesting aspect of DevOps blockchain technologies. Yeah, there's definitely tons of opportunity to leverage skills that you've spent a number of years building to run traditional applications. But then I think just the inner nerd in all of us wants to play with new stuff as well. And there's just tons of opportunity for that here, combined with the things that we've learned in the decades past of, okay, it's cool to go play with it, but I've got to capture a little data here to see if this is like worth pursuing or not, or if it's um, actually making things better. Absolutely. Cool. Anything else we should talk about? Yes, absolutely. We are hiring. The DevOps team is not big enough yet. And um, if you visit polygon.technology slash careers, you will see DevOps team member roles available in six different time zones because we follow the sun and adding more members and more time zones means when incident response is needed, no one has to get out of bed to do it. And it means <laughs> that we have more bandwidth to deal with those five different work streams we have to deal with all in parallel while still allowing time for folks to go to training, take PTO, and deal with various other personnel downtime required items. So come join us. Check us out. Nice. A lot of people are looking for work, so hopefully they're listening to the show. Yeah. And uh, we get cool swag, too. <laughs> see my, see my <laughs> Nice. Yeah, we definitely get loaded up with the uh, the swag and quality uh, equipment to work from. Yeah, definitely. Do you get to work with any cool sort of public personalities? You know, maybe people on podcasts. Or <laughs> <laughs> Nobody worth mentioning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we we also have a training allowance and home office allowance and a few other interesting perks. So yeah, it's it's a good place to work. We don't care where you are or when you are. We we have a spot for you if you're talented and capable and motivated. And uh, you don't even have to be on camera. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's another another thing worth pointing out too is all positions are obviously remote. Yes. Which I know is a lot of people are looking for. 36 countries, and we actually do not have any physical offices. We all meet on Slack or Zoom or 
Google Maps, which is pretty fun, actually. And then occasionally we show up in one place just to uh, terrify each other. <laughs> right. right. To see how tall someone actually is versus how yeah. tall they look on camera. <laughs> or, or, or in some cases, how tall they actually are versus how tall the voiceless people believe they are. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Will, how tall are you? Because, you know, seeing you on camera, I'm assuming you're about four or five inches. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah? yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. I don't think you have any legs either. No, no, no. Just chest up. That's all there is. Yeah. Like, I, y'all are both old enough to remember this. Um, Max Headroom. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> cool. Definitely. Should we do some picks? Is that your pick for the week, Max Headroom? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So if you if you don't know who Max Headroom is, surely he's on YouTube. There's probably yeah. some old video clips that somebody recorded with their VHS camcorder and uploaded to YouTube because I think that predates any any other technology that would have been used. Right. Yeah. So well, definitely. And just for context, it's, it's sort of a like a 1980s vision of what the future of computers would be like. Yes. Uh, sort of. Mm-hmm. Computers and AI. So it's it's a comedy, dark comedy, actually. It's he's he's a yeah, anyway. Go look it up. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas twenty twenty without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So, Picks, who's going first? Picks, you said you were ready. Fired up. I am ready. Let's do it. So, I picked a book a couple weeks ago. I'm going to repick it. I still haven't <laughs> finished it because I have too much email. <laughs> the book is by Cal Newport. It's called A World Without Email. Imagining <laughs> <laughs> work in an age of communication overload. And I, I really need to finish this book because it promises to tell me how to organize my time better and my work so I can be more productive and not interrupted by Slack and email and all that crap mm-hmm. all the time so I'm not getting work done. But it's a catch-22. I need to find the time to read the book to learn how to find the time to read the book. <laughs> anyway, I recommend the book. So far, it's good. And I've read a couple other books by Cal Newport. They've all been gold. So that's my first repick. My second pick is Cal, Cal Newport has a podcast, I didn't realize. And it's gold, too. I mean, I've only listened to a few episodes, but it's pretty cool. So he is called deep questions and which i guess is a play on his earlier book called deep work mm-hmm. so it's it's mostly uh listener questions being answered on the air so to speak so i recommend both uh, especially if you struggle to get work done or to find the time to concentrate which i know isn't a problem for most people in it no but <laughs> it is for me <laughs> so i recommend outlier and, and podcast. <laughs> right on i bet you vince get any picks for us definitely i got Two of them. Number one is uh, Do the Hard Things First by Scott Allen. I'm still reading it. How to Win Over Procrastination and Master the Habit of Doing Difficult Work. And in in our case, it's a good way when dealing with complex projects and deadlines to rapidly address all the points of concern so that um, you can quickly build confidence in actually delivering said complex technology or more rapidly discover, yeah, you know, this seemed like a great idea. We knew there were some challenges in it and this is a no-go because look at this big red flag. We are not going to be able to get around because of time, because of tools, because of 
coordination challenge uh, so we can put this and go spend our time where it's better spent right now rather than six months from now when it's really going to hurt. So instead of just tackling things in what seems the standard reasonable order, it's go after the hardest challenges first to either build confidence and momentum or fail the project early and and move on to the next stages. Why are we talking about that? Because as an org, as we're defining processes and technologies and working on ways to integrate all the technologies, there's some discovery and design of new workflows, tools, and and environments. And this is a good way to um, get to success or failure pretty quickly. And then the other one is a fun one. Randall Monroe, the XKCD guy, has a series of books called What If? And the, the subtitle for that is Serious Scientific Answers to Absurd Hypothetical Questions. <laughs> if you do the type of work we do, you, you have a bit for the technical and the interesting, and you have a need to definitely goof off sometimes. And this is a, a good way to do that and learn some interesting, useless, fun stuff in the process. Nice. Right on. Cool. There's a whole series of those. That definitely sounds worth checking out. So what you're telling me is I need to do the hard thing first, which is read this book about how to... Right. Absolutely. You got it. He got kicked off completely. He's just going to go read the book right now. (laughs) Yeah, seems that way. (laughs) We thought you just dropped the podcast right now to go finish reading your book. I was the hard thing first. I was like, I'm out of (laughs) here. Right? My browser just crashed. Never happens. Speaking of remote and global and distributive, where are we all? I'm in California. How about you, Will? I'm in I'm in Arizona, and I'm in uh, near Amsterdam, Holland, in the in the in Europe. Yeah. Wow. How awesome is that? Global remote and distributed right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. I've got two picks, and it's funny that one of yours was a repick, Jonathan, because one of mine is a repick as well. Wow. I'm going to start with the other one first. Warp dev. W a r p dot dev. Is this is, OS2 development? I'm so it is. Yes, absolutely. No, it's a replacement for the terminal because, you know, we've all been using Bash for decades now. So the guys and, and the people over at Warp reimagined the terminal and it's actually pretty cool. They wrote a new terminal using Rust and it does everything that you would expect the terminal to do. But it has like modern features in it where you can copy and paste text and and you can just capture the command output easily. And my favorite feature is they've got an SSH wrapper because the reason I've never done anything to like customize my bash terminal is because I spend a lot of time SSH into remote servers. And as soon as you do that, all your settings are gone. But with warp, they actually wrap the SSH commands or wrap the SSH session so that it comes back into the customized settings in your terminal and it works pretty near flawlessly. So it's actually been kind of cool playing with that. My second pick is my repick. I've picked it. It's been a while since I've picked it. So I think it's a good time to bring it back up. It's the network state from Balaji Srinivasan. And one of these days I'm going to have to go learn how to pronounce his last name because I'm positive I'm butchering it. But the network state is his It's his book that just talks about cryptocurrency and blockchain and the current state of economics and government and 
like how all of this plays out into current society. It's it's an insightful read. I'm on my second read of it because it's just that good. The first time you read it and you're like, wow. And I wanted to go through it again and continue to pick up more stuff and just write down more notes from it. It's I think it's required reading for everyone on the planet. That's how strongly I feel about it. And there's there's stuff in there, you know, that you won't agree with. But I think it's it's good to think through those problems and have the internal dialogue of why you don't agree with it. So Balaji, the network state, those are my picks for the week. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. And I believe we've got ourselves a podcast. Yes, I think so. Thanks for taking the time to hang out with us. Hey, that was fun. Good talking. Cool. All right. Thanks, everyone. And we will see you all next week. Catch you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.